The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, good evening and welcome to uh, Buddha Loka, to the Buddhist Society of Victoria for the, the Monday night. I'm still thinking Tuesday night. <laughs> So very interesting. That was from habit from last year. Last year it used to be Tuesday night. So very nice to be here and to to experience meditation together. As I always emphasize, always mention that when we meditate together, it has it adds something special to our meditation. We can find we can sit for longer, and we often get more peaceful, deeper in the meditation. It's interesting, isn't it? Why why that should be so? But I think it is some sort of effect we get from our sort of energy or our minds linking in some way to uh, support each other. And as I was, but as I was saying to somebody the other day, the Buddha didn't get become enlightened in a group meditation. <laughs> so, so this is a support. But of course, you know, we have to take it home and uh, to use what the, the support we get here at home to continue our practice and to develop the meditation. Because once a week, it's good, but once a day, that's better. <laughs> so I'll just introduce myself to, I'm, uh, I often forget this, uh, Venerable Nisarano, Ajahn Nisarano, and I am uh, a monk that ordained with Ajahn Ram uh, 22 years ago for full higher ordination and for the last 13 years I have been living in Sri Lanka and mainly uh, uh, living in forest monasteries uh, in the beautiful forests of Sri Lanka and um, for eight years lived on my own in a cave which was very very nice uh, it was a five-star cave <laughs> not to be confused somebody I told people that I once on a was a Tuesday night then, meditation, that I was, lived in a cave. And the person said, oh, just like Neanderthal man. And I said, well, not quite. <laughs> it was five-star, actually. It was good. But it still was quite a lot because you have to go up and down the mountain and every day going for the arms round was quite taxing. So so now I don't live in that cave. And there's an American monk living there now. So this evening I just wanted to... Uh, before usual format is that you know I give an introduction and then after the introduction we have a guided meditation and that lasts for about 45 minutes but the guiding I hope will cut out in enough time to, to give you enough time to go solo because that's the important thing you know the words are, are a support but after a time they can get in the way and it's like all the supports we use for meditation, you know, whether they be mantras, whether they be concepts, whether it be just, say, for instance, the breath coming in and out, all these things. Eventually, when the mind has settled down, we can let go of the mantras. We can let go of those things and just be with the experience that we are having of this peacefulness um, of the mind, the mind coming together. So this is, these are all supports, but they're not the aim of the meditation. The breath, for instance, is not the aim. It's a vehicle, and it's a vehicle to get us to the deeper states of meditation. 
And the deeper states of meditation are a vehicle <laughs> to get us to, do, to deep insight, deep wisdom. And that allows us to realize what the Buddha knew for himself. As I said yesterday when talking about right view, right view is the Buddha's wisdom, his understanding, his experience. It's not ours. And we as, we as um, following in his path or practicing the path that the Buddha taught are looking at those same areas of wisdom that the Buddha experienced for himself. But for us to begin with, it will be an intellectual understanding that will gradually, gradually um, we can confirm or we can investigate and then confirm for ourselves and then make it our wisdom and that's the important thing. Um, but what I was going to emphasize this evening was uh, using these skillful means, you know, developing positive states of mind for a support for the meditation. This is very much my approach actually to meditation. And I was going to start with a story that I often use um, from Nasruddin. I think many people know my Nasruddin stories. Nasruddin was a Sufi in the uh, sort of, I think about 1200 or something like that in Turkey. I think there was an actual person. They say it's an actual person, but it's turned into a sort of like a, uh, he's turned into like a, um, something that the, uh, like teachings have grown since his time, you know, they attribute to Nasruddin because of his character, which is sort of like this um, wise fool, a wise fool, but he's, he's teaching with his stories. And this, this one, this story is one of my favorites because it's a very important one for how we approach meditation, how we approach life too, really. And one evening, Nasruddin, this holy man, or so-called holy man. One's never quite sure he was a holy man or a hoax. <laughs> it was a pretty good hoax anyway, quite funny. But um, one evening he is outside his house, and it's dark, and he's looking under the street lamp, uh, street light. Very interesting in Turkey at that time that they had street lights. I think this is <laughs> this is an interesting uh, uh, thing to to uh, contemplate already. But he was looking out there and he's looking on the ground very, very um, thoroughly, intensely. Um, and his neighbor came out of his house and saw him looking on the ground. Uh, and uh, he said to him, Nasruddin, what have you lost? What are you looking for? And Nasruddin said, I'm, I've lost my key, the key to the house. That's what I'm looking for. And the neighbor, being a good neighbor, said, no worries, I help you. And we'll find it in no time flat. <laughs> And so they're looking under the street lamp, street light, and all around the, uh, the both houses. And, all. and after a time, the neighbor says to him, they couldn't find it. He said to Nasrin, where did you lose it? You know, and this is always an interesting thing people say to you, don't they, when you've lost something, they go, where did you lose it? Well, if I knew it wouldn't be lost, <laughs> you feel like saying. But Nasrin being Nasrin, he didn't say that actually. He said, yes, I know where, it, where I lost it. And the neighbor said, well, where did you lose it? He said, inside the house. And then, Nasr and then the neighbor said to Nasrudin, well, why are we looking outside the house? He said, ah, the light's so much better out here. <laughs> and that, is, that for me is uh, like a metaphor. 
of what we do with our lives, what we do in a sense. This is also a teaching about meditation because we're always looking outside our house. What, what do you think the house is? It's sort of our body, it's it's uh, who we take ourselves to be, our mind maybe, our heart, you know, the, the inner experience of life. So that's our house. And what do you think the key is that Nasruddin's look, well, you know, the key to the house. What is the key to the house, do you think? It can be almost anything, I suppose, <laughs> when you look at these stories. What is it most people are looking for? Happiness, yeah, that's the key, that's the key. And that's what Nasruddin was looking for, happiness outside the house. But where did happiness, where did the key always lie? Inside the house, inside the mind, inside the heart. This is where happiness comes from. And it's strange, really. Most people know this. We all know this in a, in a sense. But we're still out there under the light, <laughs> searching for happiness. In, in sights, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, taste and touch. It's quite amazing. And yet we know, don't we? We know happiness comes from within. And of course, people who can um, experience all the things through the, the senses, through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, does that make them happy? Some. Yes. Oh, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Did somebody say yes? <laughs> Temporarily. That's a good... Yeah, that's that's probably the yes. That's more or less what I'm thinking of, that it's not satisfying. And uh, oftentimes you hear of people who can do that, you know, can satisfy all the five senses. Rather than being the happiest people on earth, they can become the most bored <laughs> person on earth. Because they've done it all, been there. And the happiness, the is, is it a happiness? That's what I ask. Or is it pleasure? I think sometimes for me, you know, this is pleasure out there. You know, having nice food, food that you like, tasty food. You know, seeing a, uh, movies, seeing sunsets, seeing beautiful, uh, going into nature and seeing beautiful scenery, beautiful environments. All these things are through the senses. But they're very temporary. That's a very good choice of words, actually. They're very temporary. And because of that, they're not satisfying. We, they're a memory, very quickly become a memory. And so this is something that should remind us where happiness really lies, but we tend to forget it because we're not so familiar with our minds, with our hearts. I sometimes like to use the term heart for mind too because in in English mind is somewhat abstract but it's also seems to you know give the idea of thinking and intellect that side of things but it's really the whole experience that we have of life you know the feeling side of life as well as the thinking side of life you know all the perceptions we have all the intentions we have in life all the all the things that we will, all the things that we know. Because the mind has that capability of knowing and willing, you know, acting on what it knows. So this is often, I like this, um, this idea of the heart, 
as well. Because in many ways, no matter what people think, it's what people feel that runs their lives. You know, even even very, very intellectual, intelligent people, they run on their emotions of what's pleasant and what's unpleasant, being attracted to the pleasant and uh, being averse, being rejecting the unpleasant. So this developing the mind or getting to know the mind is a very important thing, because, or the mind or the heart. And when you say that to people, they, they sort of seem a bit blank. You know, how, could, how can you do that? And I will get into that in a moment. But I'll just mention a, a saying from the Buddha so we go back to what he, he was uh, teaching he says, monks, I do not see even one other thing that when undeveloped, uncultivated, brings such suffering as the mind. The mind when undeveloped and uncultivated brings suffering. Then he naturally does the balance. Monks, I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated brings such happiness as the mind. The mind when developed and cultivated brings happiness. And we can see that, I mean, I think people can see that in their own experience, you know, and, uh, and with people that we know, that when the mind is undeveloped, that means when it's inclining towards negative states of mind, when negative states of mind are being developed, it will lead to problems and troubles, difficulties for us. But when we're developing positive states of mind, then that will lead to our happiness and well-being. The, the, very, the very sad thing is most people don't realize that no matter who they are, they're developing and cultivating some aspect of their mind. And really it's most unfortunate when we see people developing a lot of anger, a lot of rage, a lot of greed, a lot of sense of self. All these things are a recipe for problems and difficulties. They're not a, are not a source of happiness. So this is something that, when you see it, you know, you, you, it's rather sad to see. But people, by and large, don't know we have this option. We can choose what we incline towards, what we develop. And this is what the Buddha was encouraging us, to incline towards the positive, the wholesome, those things that lead to happiness and away from the things that lead to unhappiness, to suffering, difficulties for us, and for other people too. And there's a nice uh, saying from the Buddha uh, in the, it's a verse actually, from the Dhammapada, and it puts it very well, it puts it quite nicely, because verse often has, has much um, stronger feeling to it, I think. So he says, Whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy, or someone who hates to those he hates. An ill-directed mind can do oneself greater harm. And he says, Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. And of course, <laughs> well-directed and ill-directed, you get the idea. Ill-directed, when we focus on the negative, when we when that becomes the preoccupation of the mind. And uh, very much so, you know, we can be affected 
by what we see on the media and, and things like that. People, uh, you know, after I talk to people about uh, their reactions to news and uh, whether it be through uh, the internet, television, the newspaper, whatever. And you can see, and we can see it in such detail these days, you know. I'm always amazed. There always seems to be somebody there with a mobile phone when any disaster's about to happen, you know, some, something unpleasant. We can actually see it, you know. You don't have to... Uh, even you know, imagine it or just read words about it, but the effect that that can have on the mind it can be, uh, you know, especially if we watch it a lot, we have to see what effect that has. You know, does that lead to? Um, if it leads to depression, you know, because most people, I think, have the impression that the world is getting worse and worse, and maybe it is. <laughs> Certainly, our, under, our coverage of unfortunate events is getting uh, much greater, much more detailed. But, and also the other reaction people can get is angry. And I've, I've, in the last week or so, I've been talking to people and they're so angry about various news. And I keep saying to them, well, what are you getting out of this? You know, you know you're angry, you're upset. But of course, you know, one of the, the, the ways that... Uh, uh, delusion, we call it. Delusion works. It, it persuades us that, yes, we have a right to be angry. Usually we are angry because we feel we're right and the other person or whatever group it be is wrong. And so this this is actually a great enabler. It's delusion, really, because so often I found myself, too, <laughs> I thought I've been right, <laughs> I find out no. When I get extra information, I find out that no, I haven't got it right. I was actually, uh, it was a wrong idea that I had. So these things, you know, uh, we have to see what we are taking into our minds, you know, uh, and uh, choose, choose wisely. We wouldn't, you know, go somewhere and eat food that we thought would harm us, would we? You know, I mean, we people go and eat fast food for sure, but it's very tasty and all that. But if we knew that some food was, you know, harmful, maybe poisonous, would we eat it? We wouldn't. We would say, well, no, <laughs> I know this is going to uh, harm me. And in the same way, you know, if we look at what we're taking into our minds and choose which things are beneficial and which aren't. I mean, for instance, if you watch the news and you feel a lot of, if we've watched the news and we feel a lot of compassion for people and, you know, how um, unwise we can be, how foolish we can be, that's, that's not a bad thing to get from the news, you know. Uh, you know, you can see a lot of Dhamma lessons, this is the teachings of the Buddha, in, in the news. You can see... <laughs> The main teaching is probably about greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, one of the things you can see. But So it really depends on how we, uh, the effect, the result that we experience when we give attention to anything. And the Buddha called this, when it's uh, wise attention, he called it wise attention, it's attention that gives rise to wholesome results, wholesome states of mind. Unwise attention, ayoniso manasikara, 
gives rise to negative states of mind, more greed, more anger, more delusion in our lives, more suffering. <laughs> so this is um, quite an important thing when we live our lives, is to just to check out what effect it's having on us. Is it for our, our benefit and happiness? And oftentimes, of course, so many other people are doing it that we, <laughs> we feel like we have to go along with it, but we don't. We can choose, like that food that I mentioned, we can choose whether we think it's going to be good for us or not. And as I say, something that we think is poisonous, uh, not many people would eat that, um, knowing that. And uh, the Buddha, he had a very nice teaching about um, this, which is the two types of thought. And he divided his thinking this was before he was enlightened, actually. It's quite interesting. He's thinking into two types of thoughts. That's the wholesome type and the unwholesome type. And, the, um, and he said, whichever we put a fo- we focus on, whichever we give attention, whether it be the positive or the negative, that will grow, that will become the inclination of the mind, will go in that direction. Sorry? Aunt either positive or negative temporary. Aunt? Either positive or negative temporary. Oh, all right. Aunt uh, either either positive or negative temporary. Aunt either. Yes, they can be, but the results can be quite different. Um, you can say, for instance, you eat a nice meal, that's over pretty quickly, actually. <laughs> but if you've done something very good, if you've helped somebody in a very uh, a good way, if you've gone out of your way, if you've given something to somebody, that inner experience of something positive can stay with us like a health food. It's something that can nourish us, uh, nourish us. So that's the difference between sense pleasures and what the Buddha is, what we're talking about when we're talking about the wholesome states of mind. They, these things can nourish us and give us a sense of satisfaction, give us a sense of peace and happiness. So this is the, the purpose, really. The senses always lead, and this is going to be interesting, to addiction. They lead to addiction. If we like something, we want it again and again and again. And the usual, uh, the usual traject- trajectory is that the next time it's not as good as the time before and we have to increase the uh, either the frequency or the intensity of that sense pleasure. And this is, of course, you know, the way of drugs. Drugs work this way, but actually all of our lives, all the things that we like through the senses operate that way. So if we like particular food, we'll eat it often, we'll go after it often. If we drink, like I like tea, <laughs> I tend to drink tea quite often or enjoy tea. So this is the nature of the senses. They lead to addiction, addiction to enslavement. They don't lead, and they lead to a decreasing sense of satisfaction. The Buddha called this viparinama dukkha. One monk said it's, the, you can describe this or explain this uh, type of dukkha. It's the dukkha of change. He said, it's like the first bite of the ice cream is delicious. The second bite, not quite as good. <laughs> and this is the nature of sense pleasures, actually. It's always that 
sense of diminishing return and the always trying to get that experience that we had initially. And in the process, we become slaves to the senses. This was actually what I was going to talk about. A very strong theme that the Buddha taught, you don't hear it very much, is about the disadvantages of sense pleasures. You know, because uh, most people, most of us are addicted to them. But the, that addiction actually is very not not of the, not satisfying because the real happiness, the Buddha said, comes from within. The, that's where happiness is coming from, isn't it? From our minds. These things that we see here, smell, taste and touch, they don't have that happiness in them. And for another person, that sight won't be something beautiful. For another person, that taste may be awful. <laughs> and if you don't like chili... You think, oh, God, that's terrible. But somebody else, they love that taste. So where is that beauty, where is that sense of attractiveness coming from us? So this is what the Buddha is talking about. And this is why he often gave these similes about the drawbacks of the senses. And I'll just read one. He gives many, actually. Some of them are incredibly strong. But this one I like. And uh, you might uh, might uh, relate to it too. And he's, it's uh, teaching me, he says, Householder, he's teaching this person who's a layman, suppose a man dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows and lovely lakes, and on waking he saw nothing of it. So too, householder, a noble disciple considers thus, Sensual pleasures have been compared to a dream by the Blessed One, that's the Buddha. They provide much suffering and much despair, while the danger in them is great. Having seen this thus, as it actually is with proper wisdom, wisdom, and then it goes dot, 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 clinging to the material things of the world utterly ceases without remainder. This is another one. So that's, that's first of all that sense pleasures are like a dream. What, what does that mean? A dream in the sense that the... You often hear people say this, don't you? Say It's the anticipation that's <laughs> it's the best bit in sense pleasures. You know, when you think what that uh, uh, movie's going to be like or that, that food's going to be like or something, it's the anticipation about it, thinking about it, that is often the the best thing. And... And it can be when we experience these things, it's not quite what we had in mind. It's like it's not it's not satisfying. It's not it's not real in the sense that it's going to really satisfy us and give us long lasting happiness. It's like um, a mirage, mirage. So this is and another one. Uh, I'll just give one more. Uh, maybe should finish off. So. And this is another one that's quite an interesting one, but there's lots of them the Buddha gave for these sense pleasures. And it's good for us to think about that because you think, well, why was the Buddha, um, you know, saying that sense pleasures are a danger? What he mentioned there, he says that uh, he actually, there is a saying that he has that there is uh, uh, much, what is it, apadukha, no, apasukha, bahudukha, Little happiness and much suffering. <laughs> That's what he often said about the sense pleasures. Why is he doing that? Because he wants us to turn the mind inside, to come 
to come from outside the house looking under the street lamp to inside. And when we do that, when we turn away from looking for our happiness, satisfaction, contentment from outside, we can find the source inside. That's why he's talking like this, actually. But it's not easy for us because there's a lot of conditioning from this life and many lives to look outside. And it's what everybody else is doing. <laughs> so we think, yes, must be good. So that's uh, one simile uh, that the Buddha used. There are many others, actually, that one could mention. But this evening, what I was going to focus on is, and I usually emphasize, is look developing uh, a wholesome state of mind, a positive state of mind, which in the meditation, which we can use with the meditation object. And uh, so this evening I was going to uh, use one that I have been using recently, actually, and found really nice. And that's using the idea, the feeling more, really, of welcoming, welcoming somebody, something, into our house, into our minds, into our hearts. And I found that's a very sort of uh, friendly emotion. It's a very open emotion. Uh, it's a, um, a sort of a giving to other people. And it's really, does anybody know what that really is another word for welcome? It's really pretty obvious, actually. We have a more formal meditation that's, that has very much the same, you know, that friendliness and all those things. Metta, it's metta, it is, it's metta by another name. Because, you know, we, we, have a, we have these experiences, these positive emotions, they're there. We just have to use them in a, in, a, in a way that can support our spiritual practice, our meditation. And not only do that, make the, these positive emotions more the focus of our mind so that the negative emotions, they don't have so much ground to, um, to take over the mind and so that they become the habit of the mind and we come from those positive states of mind. And what's more, they're very enjoyable states of mind. They're very enjoyable and they have pleasant consequences for us. And they're things that we need not only in the meditation but to take into our lives, to with the people we live with, the people we work with, and maybe the people we study with, socialize with, all those things. And that can really transform our lives when we put the emphasis uh, on this more positive uh, emotions. I think some people may think, oh, how can you ignore the way the world is? It's not a matter of ignoring the way the world is. It's a matter of checking up on our own minds, what we want to develop in our minds. And if we come from a very positive place, if we come from a very peaceful, clear, calm place, the way we can uh, interact with the world is so much more effective, enjoyable, pleasant for us and for others. So this is, this is the purpose of it. It's not, you know, trying to, to uh, have a, uh, what do they call it? Like a Cinderella. No, Cinderella was not the right word. But trying to make everything, you know, sort of beautiful and all that sort of thing. It's not. But what we're trying to do is make the mind beautiful. If we make our minds beautiful, the world we experience will be much, much more beautiful. And we can handle the things that aren't beautiful in our lives. 
So, um, any questions about that? Comments? Any? I think that's a good comment about it being temporary. Everything is temporary. It's the teaching of the Buddha. <laughs> so. So now we can. I was going to say this welcoming uh, that I was going to use this evening. Where I first encountered it was Ajahn Sumedho. Have you heard of Ajahn Sumedho? Some people have, surely. He's an American monk who lived in England, ordained by Ajahn Chah. And he had this, has this teaching of, I liked it a lot actually, of welcoming whatever we experience, having that sort of openness to whatever we experience, even if it's difficult, you know, rather than the usual reaction of rejection of things that are unpleasant, just being open and welcoming. Because that state of mind is a state of mind that can be very useful for us, very pleasant for us. And we can learn a lot when we don't reject. And, uh, you know, often the difficult things in our lives are the biggest learning experiences. So now we can um, have the uh, guided meditation. This will be for 45 minutes. And uh, um, so we can, first of all, find a comfortable posture and uh, to move the body to to make it as comfortable as possible. You know, if we move the hips or the shoulders, it can uh, reduce some tension from the way we've been holding the body. So we can get in touch with the body by closing our eyes and just experiencing the body for a moment, making any of the adjustments that we need to make. And we can bring to mind uh, an intention for the meditation to develop this sense, this feeling of welcome or welcoming, which is a sense of, uh, as we can, friendliness, like when a friend comes to the door, uh, friendliness, joy, acceptance, appreciation, all these things, care maybe. And we can use this sense of welcome, welcoming, to ourselves, to our minds and bodies, and to other beings as well. And to all the situations, all the experiences we have in the meditation and in life. So to help that, develop that intention, help to develop that feeling of welcoming, we can imagine someone, a friend, who has come to our home and is at the front door, just opening the front door and welcoming, welcoming them in, come in, come in. And we can get in touch with this feeling of welcoming, that sense of friendliness, openness. A sense of joy or happiness.
And we can have this sense of welcoming, this feeling of welcoming, this warmth towards, towards our bodies and relax, start relaxing the body from the top of the head with this warmth, this welcoming attention all around the top of the head and moving down the forehead and all around the eyes, the cheeks and the mouth, this warm, welcoming, friendly attention. And down to the neck, all around the neck, relaxing, allowing any hardness, any tension to dissolve, to reduce. And moving the attention to the right shoulder, starting at the neck and moving it along the shoulder, giving this warm, friendly, welcoming massage to the right shoulder, mental massage. We can bring to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the arm and moving down the arm. Relaxing the right arm, the top of the right arm, moving it down all around with this warm, friendly, welcoming attention down to the elbow, all around the elbow, down the lower arm, wrist, and the right hand right to the fingertips, soothing, relaxing, welcoming. And now we can bring to mind the left shoulder, beginning at the, uh, starting at the neck and moving slowly along the left shoulder with this kind, warm, relaxing attention. to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the arm and moving the attention down the left arm, all around, relaxing, giving it this warm, soothing attention, down to the left elbow, and 
to the wrist and to the left hand, right to the fingertips. This warm, relaxing attention. And we bring our attention to the back, just below the shoulders, and slowly move the attention down the back, soothing, relaxing, mentally massaging the back. Now we bring to mind the front of the body, starting below the shoulders and moving our attention, this warm, relaxing, soothing attention down the front of the body, down the chest, to the stomach area and down to the abdomen. Relaxing any hard, tense areas, painful areas. Welcoming the body, front of the body. Now we bring to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving down the right leg all around with this kind, warm, relaxing attention down to the knee, the lower leg, down to the right ankle, foot and toes, soothing mentally massaging the right leg. And now we bring, bring to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving the attention slowly down the left thigh all around to the knee, to the lower leg, 
the left ankle, foot and toes, soothing, relaxing, softening the left leg. And now we can bring to mind the whole body sitting here and have this sense, this warm, welcoming feeling for the body, appreciation for the body, for what it does for us, what it allows us to do. And we can expand that welcoming to the present moment, whatever is happening here and now, sounds, feelings in the body, the temperature, whatever we are aware of with this welcoming, friendly feeling. Welcome, come inside. we can extend this feeling of a warm welcome to everyone here. This friendliness, openness, well-wishing for them. Welcome. 
come inside. And we can expand this warm feeling of welcome to beyond this hall, to Melbourne, to all those that we know and don't know, family, friends, strangers, and beyond, to all beings everywhere, with this welcome, this feeling of welcome this wish for their safety, this friendliness towards them. Come in, come in, you're welcome. can bring the attention back to ourselves, this feeling of welcoming ourselves, the sense of warmth, friendliness, no judgment, acceptance, safety, welcoming, come in. And as we breathe in, we can breathe in this welcoming energy. And as we breathe out, we can breathe out this sense, this feeling of welcome, of warmth, friendliness, harmlessness, goodwill.
And now we're coming close to the end of the meditation. So we can just take a few moments to reflect on how we feel now. What came up for us during the meditation? What worked well? Did we feel the sense of welcoming whatever we experienced? And what caused these feelings, these states of mind to arise? And we can share the energy of this meditation with everyone here, with family and friends and all beings everywhere, that they may develop more of this welcoming to themselves, to their bodies, to their minds and to others in their lives. May they find the happiness they're searching for. And we can make the aspiration to develop more of this feeling of welcoming of like loving-kindness, really, to ourselves, to others in our lives, and the situations we encounter throughout our day. So that we are truly welcoming life. And we can finish by anchoring this feeling, this warm feeling of welcoming in the heart, in our hearts. So any time we can turn to this feeling, familiar feeling of welcoming, whether we're welcoming things that are pleasant or unpleasant. And now we can slowly come out of the meditation, moving the body and slowly opening the eyes. So are there 
any uh, comments or uh, questions or complaints complaints As I mentioned, the purpose of these developing these uh, positive states of mind and using them in meditation, one of the major things is is to make the meditation object interesting. Whatever we're doing, more interesting, more 3D, more alive, more attractive, because then it's very easy to stay with those things because it's a pleasant state of mind, a pleasant experience, and when we do that then when the mind stays with the object for long enough, then the automatic process arises that the Buddha talked about, which is this, uh, this joy, this gladdening that we've had, this positive state of mind can turn into joy, can turn into this deep sense of peace and uh, stillness in the body and the mind, and then the mind can come together and then go into very deep states of meditation. So it's a bit like the trainer wheels we have on bicycles <laughs> when we're first learning to ride a bicycle. You know, you might have two little wheels to, to keep us upright until we reach that stage where we, can f we feel we've found that balance and we can ride the bicycle without the wheels. And it's the same. These are supports for the meditation until it takes off, as it were, and goes by itself on this, what the Buddha called, sort of an automatic process. But one of the other functions I didn't mention of developing a pleasant state of mind, whether it be metta, whether it be compassion, welcoming, um, contentment, uh, thanks, thanks or gratitude in the mind, any of these pleasant states of mind, the immediate effect, if we can develop, get in contact with that feeling, is to reduce the negative states of mind. And these are the, the actually the big impediments to meditation. The, med, the negative states of mind is our interest, our addiction, our looking for delight in the world outside of the mind. It's the anger, the negativity, irritation, annoyance, jealousy, all those negative things that are, can be in the mind. And it can be other hindrances like tiredness and sort of uh, sloth and torpor, they call it, rigidity of the mind. And it can be restlessness or you know, this un inability to stay just with one thing, always looking for happiness in the mind, move the mind moving all the time. Or it can be worry about what we've done and said. <laughs> that can, can also be a hindrance to the meditation and doubt. Uh, about our abilities to meditate, a doubt about the process of meditation. These things are overcome to some degree by developing a positive state of mind. And one of my teachers, she was a Buddhist nun, uh, Ayakima, famous German Buddhist nun. Uh, she lived in Australia for quite a long time too, actually, and ordained in Sri Lanka and uh, taught worldwide. But she said, whatever meditation subject you're using, just take a few minutes before you embark on that subject to develop this loving kindness, this positive quality in the mind, so that we overcome any of the negativity that's lingering in the mind from the day. 
And once these five hindrances that I've just mentioned are out of the way, then the meditation can happen very effortlessly. The mind is free from these negative um, bonds, this, these negative prisms. And when the mind is free, then the mind can become peaceful and it can also develop wisdom as well, once they're out of the way. And also when we learn these, um, how to develop these positive emotions, we can take them with us. They're very portable. We can use them in our daily life. And we can always check up what we're developing, uh, but through our experience of daily life, through the things we see, hear, smell and taste and touch, are they enhancing our life, bringing happiness, peace, satisfaction, understanding and wisdom, or not? Are they bringing more anger, more depression, more irritation, more helplessness, more hopelessness, that's probably the word, <laughs> hopelessness or not? So we can see what we're developing in the mind and not just be passively absorbing this um, material that we're experiencing. We're processing it. We're recycling it. <laughs> so it's very, very, and reusing it. That's, that's very important. So I hope you found this useful this evening. And I always find if there are no questions at the end of meditation, I'm very happy. <laughs> If somebody's ready to give a dissertation or whatever, I think, oh, wow, maybe the meditation didn't work so well for them because there's more thinking, you know, we want a, a break from the thinking. And that's part of letting things calm down and seeing things more clearly. So we can finish uh, there. And uh, if those who would like to, we can just pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. <laughs>